0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. I'm your host, Marty Bennett, and today, Wednesday, August 25th, 2021, we're going to be taking a look at three questions we've been hearing from international educators this past week. We'll get to those questions in just a minute, but before we begin, as always, we want to give a special shout out to those joining us live here on Facebook. Uh, Those who watch on repeat on our YouTube channel or our Facebook page for SMIE Consulting, thank you for being a part of that community. And also those who take the time to download us each week as part of their podcast listening habits. It's good to be part of your lives each week in our profession of international education, and we look forward to sharing uh, some of our tips and uh, thoughts along the way related to our three questions of the week. Those questions are, what's the state of U.S. visa processing abroad? A couple of articles that reflect some worrying trends. We'll look at, are international students protected enough in today's international admissions, international education race that we're all in for students abroad? And finally, what's the best setup for an international office on campus? So we'll talk about those three issues and more on our midweek roundup today for Wednesday, August 25th. For those of you who have not uh, been a part of the Roundup family before, we take each of the three topics we cover uh, in depth here on the Roundup. We take that from a a series of news stories that we see uh, coalescing around a certain topic each week. Uh, Usually uh, those topics are covered in depth in our weekly newsletter called All the SMIE News Fit to Share. I always share the the link to the most recent edition in the comment section here on the Facebook page, but you can go to smieconsulting.org slash subscribe uh, to subscribe to the newsletter as well as see all of our past editions of that uh, weekly news source. Now, it's a wrap-up of uh, all those top stories we see in both social media and international education and often where those overlap. So let's get first into the topic today of what the state of U.S. visa processing abroad is. So for those of you who are not aware, uh, U.S. consulates abroad are funded in terms of their uh, staffing for uh, consular officers to uh, do visa processing and the interviews and all of that. Uh, They are staffed based on the revenue they generate from their DS-160 Application fees uh, for non-immigrant visa uh, appointments, so it's they're self-funded in, in, in many ways. Uh, they have minimal budgets that are part of what they their operating expenses are. But to to be able to staff them in the way that they need to to meet the demand uh, for uh, student visas and other immigrant and non-immigrant visas, it's dependent on the volume of, um, of visa appointments that they have uh, for, and visa fees paid by the DS-160 f- uh, fees. Uh, the standard fee is $160, uh, but some locations have additional fees that they levy uh, to help support their services that they provide. Now, the challenge is, uh, for those of you who can do math, uh, you realize in the last year and a half of the pandemic, visas had come to almost a, a standstill, certainly in 2020 they did, Uh, 2021, we saw some reopening happen more broadly by April, May this year. Uh, But the challenge is they're funded based on the revenue that they've generated uh, from uh, visa appointments that have come in. So the challenge has been uh, in our consulates and embassies as they've reopened is really getting there. Not only being able to open amidst uh, pandemics uh, effects on other communities, uh, much differently than it has here at home uh, in ter- more severe ways in certain countries. Uh, certain restrictions preventing uh, consulates to be reopened re- re- fully in our location, key locations around the world, not opening until May uh, for China and mostly till, not till June for most of India. So there's some real challenges that have emerged in the last, uh, just in the last six months, in terms of our ability of U.S. consulates to fully reopen. Uh, There have uh, there's been some leaked internal memos that have popped up, and this uh, this article that we're referencing today uh, is is one that um, comes from Foreign Policy uh, magazine and uh, journal really uh they refer to several leaked memos and cables that point to a drastic restriction in finances that the bureau uh, in the bureau of consular affairs that will lead to reduced services until at least 2022 so perhaps, perhaps even 2023 so it uh, has resulted uh, the lack of uh, finances because, again, of ge- self-generated of generated visa fees because they weren't processing visa applications for for so long. Uh, you now have um, a backlog of more than five hundred thousand immigrant visa applications and millions for non-immigrant visas, including student visas. M- majority of those are probably tourist visas and business visas. Uh, moreover, uh, this is also on top of uh, the Trump era, where there were 400 employees uh, that quit or retired. Many of them were visa officers, uh, which do tend to be the entry-level pieces. So a lot of folks that might have joined uh, Foreign Service uh, have maybe during the Trump administration and had just uh, really some some horrible experiences uh, and have left, uh, and there's even a survey now um, a, According to a recent survey of State Department staff that says even now one in three State Department staff are looking to leave their posts. So there's a lot of turnover and those bodies can't be replaced uh, quickly enough uh, for uh, to, to get to, Get uh, the uh, consular officers needed to staff uh, visa appointments back to normal levels. So it's really a challenge. Um, those uh, and I mentioned earlier that these uh, consular officers tend to be uh, the the ones who are doing the visa interviews. That's usually your first assignment overseas. Is uh, you spend your time in front of uh, visa windows uh, interviewing prospective visa applicants, non-immigrant, non-immigrant and immigrant alike. So. There are some real challenges, and though the greater majority of uh, consulates have reopened, uh, we've seen some stories in certain countries where they've not. Uh, some of that's down to local staffing, some of that is down to local restrictions uh, that uh, you do not they don't have, don't have the staff fully to do the visa interviews. So there's some real logistical challenges currently that the State Department faces that are frankly of their own making uh, that, the way that these these positions are funded is through uh, a mechanism that they've set up or have had to set up over the years. I don't know the full history of that in terms of how uh, consular officers have, have been funded before uh, the S one hundred and sixty fees, where you have been used to to pay for them uh, to, uh, to to be hired locally. So what uh, what is really troubling is the knock on effect the pandemic is going to have on visa processing. So when we see our country uh, opening to more of normal uh, in, uh, in terms of in-person education for campuses this fall. The majority uh, are planning in-person or slightly modified hybrid versions this fall because of the, of the rise of Delta. They're not completely going online like they did last fall. So there's more of a normalcy there, but certainly campus is anything but uh, with now challenges of... Um, Uh, visa or vaccinations required. uh, That will also impact international students and depending on how they're implemented. So we have a lot of things uh, that uh, go into the the challenging um, dynamics of um, running campus uh, communities. uh, When Uh, many who have been trying to come for the last year and a half some still aren't able to get in because they're they aren't able to access visa appointments in a timely manner to be able to get here in time for in-person studies this fall that they're maybe deferring again to the spring or worse yet uh, maybe uh, giving up completely maybe having an opportunity to go online if campuses have made that option available again not everybody has and they put put themselves in slightly Uh, awkward situations with uh, what do you do with these students who want to begin been waiting for some of them up to a year and a half to start their studies haven't been able to uh in person now there's another at least another semester where they might not be able to do that so what what does that mean for you and your campuses and how you'll respond to their needs so uh the great this article by foreign policy also goes into some of the history on how uh, how uh, State Department uh, consul, uh how the State Department manage uh, consular affairs officers, uh, and that it's uh, it's really the uh, the challenge uh, of resources and um, but providing the services that are needed to support uh, entry of those non-immigrant and immigrant communities that are looking to come from abroad to the U.S. So this is something that. Uh, Visas were actually not uh, issued for as part of border control until World War I Uh, and that was formalized in the Immigration Restriction Act of 1924, according to this article. And the challenge has been in 2019, uh, before the pandemic really hit travel, consular affairs issued nearly 10 10 million non-immigrant visas uh, and and visa applications. Officers were expected to interview, in many locations, 120 applicants per day. So that's not it. Your first experience as a foreign service officer abroad is as a visa officer, and that's 120 interviews that you're doing every day. So that's that's, that's tough work. Uh, It's a rush system. Uh, The visa interviews in five minutes or less, uh, conducted through bulletproof glass, often in a language other than English. Uh, particularly for a lot of the non-immigrant visas like uh, that are for, for, for visitor visas, that type of thing. So uh, during that five-minute interval, uh, the officers must also complete security and criminal checks. The uh, system is uh, well beyond what was envisioned back in 1924 and in 1920, and 1952 when the Bureau of Consular Affairs was created. So uh, it's a really a good history piece as well, I think, uh, for for all in international uh, education officials, particularly those on the international admissions, on ISSS sides. Certainly you'll find out uh, probably a lot of things in there that you didn't know about um, about visa processing overseas. So a uh, useful article, and uh, w- though we've seen some pop-ups, some... Uh, some news stories about how many visas have been issued in China since May uh, and uh, there's another one we'll be sharing next week about uh, the visas issued uh, f- uh, US visas uh, in uh, from, issued to Indians has hit, hit a record number this this year already uh, ahead of pre-pandemic levels we'll be sharing that story in the newsletter next week. so uh, though there are some bright spots uh, clearly as a system there's some real challenges here. Uh, And in terms of what that means uh, for international educators, there's still uh, quite a bit that needs to be done to get us back to where where we need to be pre-pandemic in terms of our ability to to bring in those students that we've been eagerly, so eagerly waiting to come to campus for the last year and a half. So more on that that topic, I'm sure, in the weeks to come. Next, we turn to a question that is always been there in the back of our minds as international educators, uh, that when we hear the horror stories of how some students' journeys to the U.S. began, uh, what they might have had to go through either in their personal lives or uh, in their, uh, just the process of applying to uh, to the United States through uh, educational agents or other other services, uh, so there's some real harrowing experiences that have uh exist and you hear those horror stories and you, you always think to yourself, are international students protected enough? And that's something that we, it's, the, it's, a, it's our second question this week, but it's a, it's a topic that it's always there, I think, for, for international educators, particularly those on the front end of the recruitment process. But it's uh, an article this past week from um, um, the Walrus uh, uh, in a Canadian publication, It's called The Shadowy Business of International Education. Foreign students are lied to and exploited on every front. They're also propping up higher education as we know it. So that's kind of the tagline for the article. So uh, the story begins, uh, and I really encourage all of us to take a look, and it's probably a good five-minute read, but uh, it's an article that focuses on the story of uh, one student, um, Kushandeep Deep uh, Singh uh, from Punjab in northern India. That uh, basically his family are farmers, and you uh, know he lives in a ramshackle house below grade uh, that, uh, that gets flooded often when, it, when during the rainy season. Uh, they are um, a 12-acre. Their family owns a 12-acre plot uh, of land with wheat, rice, a few cows, and buffalo on uh, this from the article, he talks about his life growing up, uh, that the family and the, the line of this the, of this paragraph here, the family's biggest investment by far was Uh Most of the kids in his school in his in his village learned while sitting on the floor of the local government school. But Kushandip's father insisted on sending him to the nearest city, Pachala, uh, to a attend a private school with basketball courts, cricket pitch, and instruction in English. And The quote from Kushandeep was, my father never compromised on my education. Tuition alone cost um, almost a third of the family's income, and that's for his, his schooling before university. Uh, so this is, uh, this is a, a story of the family doing everything they can to educate Kushandeep and prepare him uh, for study abroad. Uh, so this is uh, a story as he, when he was ending his secondary school in Canada, uh, in India, uh, a new, and the, the tar- article says, a new product began to appear, post-secondary education in Canada. Uh, so this is, uh, he was born in 1999, so that uh, shares you a little bit on what we're, what, the timing we're talking about here. Uh, so this was uh, uh, uh basically canada's kind of not first uh, canada's first started uh started exploring india as a market well over a decade ago but it's become the market for uh for canada their number one market is india uh canadian and the in the article here a uh, student, a student in India who was preparing to study overseas, when he spoke with uh, the author, Canadian education is being sold like hotcakes. You don't even have to sell it; people will just come and buy it. So Canada is, has really established itself in India, as uh, and particularly in Punjab, where a number of the, uh, a solid number of students that uh, come to Canada are, are coming from is uh, is from Punjab. So this is. Uh, the interesting uh, that uh, interesting dilemma of how uh, that these families see uh, their uh, educate their their education for their sons and daughters, uh, post secondary education in particular, uh, to be uh, focused abroad, and that families are committing all their resources uh, as much as they can to to make it happen. Uh, so what? Uh, what happens the nature of this story is uh, why Canada has become so attractive because the, they make it a very straightforward process for study to work to residency uh, that you can uh, you can you can have your immigrant dream there uh, much like the US has, has always had there. Uh, the American dream has been something that's attracted immigrants from around the world for for decades for centuries and that's uh, something that still is uh, and canada has its own version of that now in terms of uh, and making it very clear uh, the pathway for those who are looking to come abroad that if they come to study even in a vocational program for two three years they can have a a study to work to residency pathway very clearly laid out for them uh, at least from the front end so this is uh this is some the story goes into into depth into kushandeep's experience and uh they uh, generally, go to um, uh, they go to community colleges, the vocational colleges I was mentioning, because uh, that's that quickest path uh, to residency. Some will do their bachelor's degree in the U.S. and come uh, to do one of those vocational programs or a one-year master's program. Uh, that uh, the it's a it's a fairly detailed article and goes into. Uh, in, in Canada's perspective, well, the international students are the are considered as the article points out the product of a system that has blurred the lines between immigration and education. In an unofficial ad hoc arrangement meant to appeal to potential immigrants while avoiding any responsibility for their settlement. So this is uh, and it talks about the dependence of uh, in post secondary institutions on. Uh, these international students for their fee, fee structures and it talks about the, um, the shadowy world of education agents who deliver them. So this is uh, something that Kushandeep's uh, story uh, he went to an educational agent uh, there, and he said these salespeople are not difficult to track down in India you could find an agent shop on every corner, every street, and every road says Gushandeep. Uh One agent I spoke with put their numbers in the tens of thousands in India alone, uh, though there's no way to uh, know the exact figure, uh, there uh, it's as it is largely an unregulated business in in India. So, agents uh, that uh, that are, are that aren't for, schools aren't often forthcoming about their commissions, according to the article but multiple agents told me their industry standard is 15 to 20% of a student's first year tuition, a rate that can net them anywhere from $1,500 to $5,000 per head. Uh, so that's the commissions the institutions are willing to pay since it would be recouped in international by an international tuition close to five times higher than domestic fees in Canada. So uh, the article says, today attracting overseas students is a financial imperative. And again this is a canadian perspective on this on this uh on this story about the, the shadowy world of international education but uh interestingly uh international one of the major uh show you how significant international students are to higher education uh in canada today international students are responsible for almost 40 percent of all tuition fees across canada so that's a significant chunk of the pie for uh... for operating expenses for these universities and uh... these institutions are having to do everything they can to make sure that their uh... their survival as an institution is continually uh... guaranteed so international students are propping them up and uh, there's certainly a lot of truth to that in in a lot of these particularly the vocational education sector sector in canada so we're looking at uh, this story and he talks about uh, what the agents do—that uh, agents are uh, the kind of the worst stories we've heard about. Uh, agents double charging, taking money from students as consultants, and then taking commission from the institutions, falsifying grades, faking English proficiency tests, anything to get the kids into a Canadian school. Apparently, uh, so you—they want, uh, and they talk about the numbers of, of of international students that are coming to Canada and that uh, the promise of uh, the study to work to residency is one that is uh, significantly appealing to the Indian market. Uh, We've talked about that here on the Roundup before about how uh, valuable it is uh, as a marketing tool to have that clearly defined pathway to a, a country where uh... that is hypersensitive to work opportunity as part of their reasoning for going abroad whether it's study or, or direct uh, employment uh... that that really drives a lot of interest and those markets that can do it well and that can consistently deliver on uh, their promises of uh... that pathway to permanent residency uh... via study and work uh... is are going to come out ahead and that's where you see a lot of interest driving to uh to the markets that can promise that. So uh, there's some really interesting lines here of, uh, that are, are discussed in terms of what is uh, the, the, I don't know if it's a system uh, under incredible pressure uh, that uh, these agents overseas are, are, will continually push that and not necessarily always acting in the student's best interests. Uh, and that's, that's, that's the one of those challenging pieces that can really, um, uh, really is something as institutions, we have responsibilities in our, doing our due diligence uh, to vet agents before we sign up with them, uh, knowing uh, if, what kind of training they have, what kind of accreditation they have, other uh, references from other institutions they're already working with to see if they're delivering on the promise of quality students. Uh, so there's a lot that goes into these discussions, and I think that that uh, a and, and thought that's put behind it for particularly institutions that are just starting out, uh, it's really important to spend the time on the front end so that uh, that when you're when you're choosing the right folks to deal with uh, these agents abroad, that you are uh, not just. Just saying, accepting every offer that comes your way, but actually spending some time evaluating them uh, and in the evaluation process, uh, checking references, uh, uh, paying attention to outcomes at other institutions for their students. Are these the kind that come in and are tra- you say, get them the right 20s? They, uh, come into uh, the, the, the country on your documents and then transfer out uh, at automatically before they actually enroll. Those are, some, those are agents that are probably less than, uh, less than honest in terms of the, if they're the ones driving that kind of traffic that are constantly tra- uh, uh, ch- transferring out before they begin studies with you. Uh, the ones that send students whose bank documents are faked or whose test scores are faked, whatever it might be. Those things, if you have students and all of a sudden come to campus and uh, they uh, they can't function in the classroom or they can't pay their bills, which isn't exactly an uncommon occurrence, but uh, for international students, uh, there's these are the things, depending on their sources, is uh, holding yourself accountable to uh, for the students you're bringing in and bidding, uh, but also uh, it, you need to help hold your agents accountable if they have a continually bringing in a stream of students that are are failing or are not not coming in with adequate funding, so there's it's a do- double-edged sword. Certainly, uh, there, it has its benefits, but it, it does, uh, does the use of agents in the way that's described with this article. There are those those horror stories that you got to be prepared for and have an action plan in place to, to deal with. If you, if you aren't doing the vetting on the front end, uh, certainly on the back end, uh, if you're inheriting a system of agents, certainly updating training and those types of things, expectations, being very clear on what those are. Uh, when you're paying out the commissions that you're paying out for these students, you certainly need to uh, protect your investment, uh, so to speak. And that's something, because it's your institution's uh, reputation, it's your reputation as an international educator, it's the, the students that you're bringing in and the experiences they have. If they're not positive ones, they end up failing or going home early because they can't cut it. Uh, what does that mean for you? Uh, and how what their student experience will be and how that will be re- related to their friends and family back home. So a lot of murky waters here. Uh, that uh, no, Certainly not a lot of new stories coming out of it, but certainly um, uh, not refreshing, but certainly uh, certainly makes it clear that it's not just a U.S. issue. Uh, these, uh, the issue of a, uh, the unscrupulous agents is one that impacts students uh, worldwide, but it's uh, it's something that we need to be thinking about more broadly. And certainly, if we're moving towards a, uh, an international education strategy in the United States. Uh, we should be including pieces on uh, protections for our international students throughout the journey, not just uh, once they arrive and they're directly in our, in our care as institutions, but really from the front end uh, in terms of who we're interacting with abroad to, uh, to get in front of these students, that's something we need to take particular uh, attention to in how we're constructing our own policies on campus and as a country. So I do want to uh, shift gears to our final question, and this comes actually from a, a NAFSA-RAMA, uh, Recruitment Admissions Marketing uh, uh, Network uh, group uh, that, we, uh, that NAFSA has. Uh, so this, this story is, a, is actually a, an initial question that was posed uh, by one of, uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Jim Crawley from Hope College. Uh, and that the conversations that have developed out of that are, are very interesting and I, I, I bring it up today as, as kind of one of those questions that uh, is something we want to think about uh, as international educators uh, in our in what makes the best environment for us uh, to operate in. So uh, my question is what's the best setup for an international office on campus and in terms of uh, the way Jim's question was, uh, is what office owns international recruitment on your campus, and why? Because uh, he's uh, uh, he's in a situation at Hope where uh, is it? Is uh, is going? Is it in, an, in the admissions office? Particularly, he's talking about international recruitment, uh, and obviously, where his particular piece of the puzzle for international, he's, his title is director of global recruitment. Uh, He is, I think, at at this point has a direct line to either the provost uh, or the president, but that is changing, that uh, his office might be shifting under uh, under admissions, regular admissions, uh, as a unit there. Uh, There's a separate Center for Global Engagement that uh, manages the international students and study abroad uh, and partnerships and such and that, that's the, what he, see, he sees as a potential other option for him. So some of the questions, uh, the responses to this question have uh, related to uh, the size of the campus that much larger, uh, I think the, uh, many of the res- re- responses have said at smaller institutions, uh, that uh, they don't like this one in particular uh, Walsh, uh, Walsh University a smaller institution under 2,000 undergraduates 135 of those are international uh, he works in an admissions office and he has responsibilities for international recruitment within that so they handle or he handles it within rec- in the admissions office uh, that's for all admissions not just international uh, handle recruitment, partnerships, marketing, application processing, I twenties as DSOs, travel budgeting, and much more. Um, some of his international, uh, some of his colleagues also ha- that do international also have a domestic territory. Are in charge of uh, global nomads, the dual citizens that or uh, U.S. permanent residents abroad. So uh, at that that college with 135 internationals, their ISSS office is a one-person op- office. Uh, and study abroad has two individuals with a variety of other non-international responsibilities so marketing office does not do international marketing unless it comes from the uh, the person's office who does from within admissions and they are outsourcing some of their international marketing Uh, the the, 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 the person who's responding from Walsh has said his preference would be to operate within an interna- international office where it would be all under one roof uh, for uh, international admissions recruitment, uh, for current students, current international students study abroad, and all of that. Uh, the, so he, the, the pitfalls, uh, he calls it, of working in international for a smaller institution is that you're mostly alone uh, and have to rely on heavily on the network outside your institution. Uh, for ideas, advice, and support. So uh, he he ends on the point, uh, his his, his uh, conclusion is, I don't think many smaller institutions in the US are investing heavily enough in international recruitment to have any meaningful impact on overall enrollment, unlike our, our Western colleagues, where institutional enrollments make up a far larger percentage of overall en- enrollments. Uh, so I think it's really interesting here that uh, that uh, we, he's trying to, he wants to continue this dialogue as well. So I think it's a good conversation starter. Uh, another, another institution, uh, Florida Atlantic, the Center of Global and Eng- Engagement is involved in international recruitment but doesn't process applications. So it's a little bit larger institution there, public institution. Uh, I don't think no, it's not a public institution. Uh, handle in-house foreign credential evaluation for post-secondary coursework. Leads generated through the international recruitment office are prof- processed through the office of admissions, uh, so that's separate. Uh, we, because they don't have a separate international admissions office, it's all one office, with few individuals who handle individual who, international student admission reviews. Okay, so yeah, so the admissions uh, once they're admitted and. Uh, Visa document issuance is done through the International Office Center for Global Engagement. Not ideal, but it's what worked for us. Uh, So that's uh, another perspective on that. Uh, Kara Johnson at Governor State University in Illinois uh, that has uh, one office that handles all things international, including recruitment, admissions, immigration, advising, study abroad, partnerships, programming. International population is about 130, but growing. Five staff, director, assistant director, international student advisor, two foreign credential evaluators, plus a GA and several student workers. Um, So that's interesting. She started at Governor State and reported to the provost, weren't part of any division. A few years ago, moved under the associate VP for enrollment management and talking with her boss, uh, uh, that staff uh, within enrollment management uh, had to step in and assist uh, because of uh, fall application numbers. All hands on deck, that type of thing. Uh, size of institution, she uh, admits, uh, also matters here. Uh, some other responses: uh, Northern Illinois, uh, they uh, is a, international admissions is a standalone unit, uh, but at the same time is part of a couple divisions. So both in international affairs and the graduate school, uh, because they oversee graduate admissions. So uh, that's interesting to to see that. Uh, But it's certainly a question that I think is one we'll we'll be hearing more of as more institutions see the value in recruiting internationally and are looking for answers as to how to set up their offices on campus. So uh, that's a a very important question and that can morph over time depending on on your operations and probably should uh, depending on how you start. So that's all we have for you today on the Roundup. Uh, It's a pleasure being a part of your uh, discussions each week on international education and look forward to uh, moving forward into September and the start of the new school year and we'll be discussing a lot of the enrollment numbers that will be popping up in the weeks and months to come. So until next time, have a wonderful day. Cheers.